0: Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change
1: the face of conservation.
2: Hey
0: everyone, welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marcia Brownlee, and we are joined today by co host Sarah Topp. Hi, Sarah.
2: Hi, Marcia. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I'm excited that you are here. And I want to start us right off the bat with a chicken update. How are your chickens?
2: <laughs> my chickens are doing great. My my four hens, um, Electra, Domino, Arwen, and uh, Rogue, they're <laughs> almost full size chickens, which is crazy because just a few weeks ago, they were little itty bitty chicks that fit in one hand. And yeah, Electra is still. Well, I guess I'm Electra's favorite. She flies right up onto my arm as soon as I walk into the coop every Aww. single time, and it makes my day.
0: <laughs> That's super sweet. Very yep. cool. I miss chickens. I was I <laughs> when my I've probably told this story before, but when I had chickens, one of my favorite things to do was to watch them chase grasshoppers, and the grasshoppers in Montana are out of control right now. And so, every time <laughs> I see a grasshopper, I think of a chicken. So wouldn't this weird? Nobody needed to know that. There it is. No, that definitely makes
2: sense. Um my littlest one rogue caught a grasshopper inside their outdoor coop portion last week or the week before, I'm not sure. Um, but it was so funny seeing this giant grasshopper sticking out of this little tiny chicken's mouth, and she was just running around with it so excited, and the other chickens were all chasing her because they wanted a part of the fun too. Right. Um yeah, that was I was impressed.
0: It's the best thing. Uh Our guest today is Lydia Parker. Hi, Lydia.
1: Hi, I'm enjoying this, uh, the chicken talk. I have seven chickens.
0: What are your chickens named?
1: (laughs) Oh my goodness. Let's see if I can do it. We have Red, clearly, because she's Red. (laughs) Um, Red, Shakira, Pinguinita, Lacey, um, Loretta, and oh goodness, who am I missing? Nima. Um, I think I'm missing a couple. Oh, and Karen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, so fantastic. Shakira is my favorite.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, she's a Colombian Wyandotte. and Shakira's from Colombia, so I had to had to do that's something that's like perfect.
2: that. It's <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for having
2: me
0: too. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to dive into a conversation and to actually hear more of your backstory because in all the times that we've talked, I don't know that we've dug into that. So I'm super curious um, and really looking forward to it. Uh,
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward
0: to it too. So I I feel like the chicken was a good warm-up question. (laughs) 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 And and so I'm going to go ahead and, and... Dive right into the meat of the conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about sure. who you are?
1: Yeah, Sekhon. Um, my name is Lydia. Um, I'm from the Ganangayaka people of the Flint, um, registered tribal member in the Walker Mohawk Band. Um, and I am the executive director of Hunters of Color. And you know, we are a racial equity based 501c3 nonprofit working on increasing access. And participation in the outdoors amongst people of color, um, especially in hunting. If <laughs> you can't gather from the name of our organization, uh, but in conservation and fishing and just outdoors activities in general. Um, so that's, I guess, like the shortest little snippet about me. Um, I'm from. I'm calling from, or I'm in. I'm on the podcast from Oregon um, on Kalapuya land. And I am—I um, uh, have a degree in history from Oregon State University, and I currently live here, like I said, in Oregon. Um, and didn't make it too far <laughs> away from Oregon State. Um, but that's a little bit about myself. And I don't know if I have any other fun things to say other than I—I um, I came into this the uh, hunting world as a new hunter. Uh, I grew up fishing my entire life and hunting was never something that I got into because I've been more wary of the firearms aspect of it. And it wasn't until I met Jimmy, who's our um, co-founder of Hunters of Color, who was like, you realize you don't have to use firearms to hunt. (laughs) A lot of people are archery hunters. And I was like, Oh wow. Why did I never think about this? Um, So that's a, I guess some of my backstory Um, and Oh, I came into Hunters of Color from, uh, sports background before before this um nonprofit uh management and administration and I did uh, radio play-by-play for baseball for a long time. <laughs> so I'm coming in from a from a very um male dominated space. Yeah. Uh, and so I've been used to kind of these conversations, you know, where baseball is clearly it's a it's a game played predominantly by men. I played baseball growing up, but I was one of the only girls that did so. Um, and so I'm coming into this, this sphere, the hunting sphere that it's, what is it? 89% Mm -hmm. um, male identifying. Mm -hmm. And so I'm coming into this sphere and then working on getting more inclusivity for people of color. So it's all, it all kind of ties together in the end.
0: That's fascinating. So I read that when I I was going over your bio on the hunters of color website and, um, (laughs) that's, that's, Okay, like rabbit holes abound here, and I'm going to take us down a couple of them. But how, yeah, tell us how you, how did you get involved in doing the play by play for baseball?
1: So, my dad actually is Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers here at Oregon State University. Um, he's won Oregon Broadcaster of the Year like six times or something like that. And anyone who's a Oregon state fan knows his voice really well. We can't go anywhere without someone saying, is that Mike (laughs) Parker talking? That kind of thing. Or people say, he sounds like the radio. So yeah, I just, I grew up around sports and I thought that that was something that you do when you grow up, you talk about sports. And I, uh, I actually started the first play-by-play program at a community college that I was attending. And I worked there for quite a while and did some other summer league games in the West coast league baseball here. I did some basketball and volleyball too. Um, but it was mostly mostly baseball because that's my favorite sport
0: and then i'm I'm curious for a couple of reasons, so I came from an early childhood education, which is not a male dominated field it's like <laughs> <laughs> um it's it's the exact opposite, so I come from a field working <laughs> with a ton of women um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which clearly is something that I enjoy doing because I'm with barnabas now but <laughs> I was recently, um, Tracy Stone Manning came to a virtual meeting that we had with ambassadors a couple of months ago. And in that, she was talking about her experience as a leader in conservation and mentioned that she grew up with like three brothers, I think. She was the only girl in a mm. household of boys. And she was talking about how um, how that shaped her a bit in the way that she approaches um, the conservation mm. community and her leadership. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that coming from working in, uh, sports to working in a hunting and fishing? Like what are some takeaways that translate or, or what are some experiences that yeah. were beneficial?
1: I definitely think that it was a good jumping, jumping point to go from baseball, especially baseball play-by-play play, to hunting and fishing because I am used to working predominantly with men. Um, and especially, I think that what the benefit that I got was, um, I don't know how to say this in the most polite way. I've learned how to BS with, (laughs) with my dad's friends, um, because I was amongst all the other, you know, radio play by play people. I go on trips with my dad and I hung out with a lot of my dad's friends and I learned how to, you know, just kind of hang out with people that don't look like me, (laughs) um, and don't sound like me and um, identify differently than I do. And so I think that that was kind of the biggest uh, benefit to, to having this experience in a predominantly male uh, environment and really being able to, having to figure out who I am and what I stand for um, and not letting people push me around. <laughs> I uh, I, uh, I think that I learned to be confident and speak confidently um, and you know, know who I was enough to introduce myself to people without being afraid, because um, it can be intimidating, and I totally understand that. I think it's a privilege that I've that I've had that I've you know been in these situations where I have to um, work predominantly with um, predominantly in baseball older <laughs> older mm-hmm. men. <laughs> so I think that's been helpful with translating to the to the um, hunting hunting sphere. Interesting. Um, I want to go back a
0: little bit to your story um getting into hunting so do you just archery hunt
1: yeah so i um and i shouldn't say so let me go back okay. <laughs> i don't just archery hunt i also for i mean for waterfowl i i think that you can <laughs> there are mm-hmm. people who do but that's like the one one sphere where i i'll go out i i prefer to not um to not use shotguns, especially because, so I, from my background, I grew up with, so my dad's indigenous and my mom is white. And my dad grew up in Los Angeles and he has never touched a firearm. In his mind, (laughs) a firearm is not just a tool that you would use, for example. Um, And I think that's a, it's a really common thing for a lot of people that it's, Firearms are seen as a weapon, or um, as just something people don't want to don't want to deal with or don't want to be around. They only hear about the negative things and, and don't see it as a tool, like a climber, for example, sees a carabiner as a tool. Um, that hunters can, can see a firearm and, and know it's a means to an end in proc- procuring sustainable meat, um, in doing something they love and being outdoors. And so, anyways, I I had this, you know, <laughs> one side of my family where dad seriously has never touched a firearm ever put his hand on one <laughs> and my mom on the other side of my family um they're all hunters and fishers hmm. and so that was interesting to have that juxtaposition and I was more on my dad's side of things in that I didn't I didn't grow up hunting um and didn't grow up really we did some basic firearm training just because my uncle Wanted us to be safe because our family, my mom's side of the family did hunt. Um, so we did some basic firearm training. And I still, I don't like the loud noise. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, and I, I'm still learning exactly how to hold it so it doesn't kick as much. Um, I shot a 20 gauge for the first time this year. And I was like, why have I not been shooting these instead of 12 gauges? Right, (laughs) Because it's been, I, that, that was really an eye opener that there are options to fit your body, Mm -hmm. to fit your frame. Um, and so now that, now that I've experienced that, I'm less trepidatious, but it's the, it was the 12 gauges. I was like, okay, my shoulder hurts. I'm, I'm going to go back to archery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but anyways, that's a long answer to your question. No, I do not just use uh, archery, but I prefer to prefer to use archery um, whenever I can.
0: It's so interesting. Are you finding? Because uh, I know, I don't even know what the question I want to ask. Like, uh, I firearms are a barrier, uh, and discomfort around firearms are a barrier to. Um, adult hunters coming into the field. And I know with Artemis, archery is a strong appeal Um, Mm -hmm. because of that. Yeah. Just what you mentioned, like there's, there's less of a safety hurdle to overcome both mental and actual, but there's, there's just a abrasiveness about it. If you're uncomfortable um, or unfamiliar with being around firearms, that's easier to approach with archery. So are you finding in the work that you that Hunters of Color does with um, new hunters and people just entering the field. Is that common?
1: Yeah, it's definitely very common. And we've even had some pretty direct questions from folks that say, what are you going to do to address the fact that a lot of these communities, a lot of BIPOC communities have been historically traumatized by things like gun violence. And I think that the, one of the number one things that we respond with is always, you know, empathy and understanding that yeah, that is a real concern for a lot of people. And it's a valid concern for a lot of people too, who have had really negative experiences or connotations with firearms. And we would never force someone (laughs) to use a firearm because archery is an option. That's something that we're very, you know, we're very much so gonna stand on that you do not have to use a firearm to be a hunter. And I love that, you know, Artemis, and I picture Artemis, I can Mm -hmm. see Artemis, I picture, you know, an archer, a huntress, who's an archer. And so I think that that's, that's really cool that that's something that you guys can do as well. Um, But yeah, it's definitely a question we get a lot. And then the other thing is just our way, one of the things that we're trying to do and that we do just by existing as hunters of color is defying stereotypes and breaking down stereotypes and encouraging unlearning and relearning, that kind of thing. So if we're encouraging people to unlearn what a firearm might be Mm -hmm. um, as a weapon, instead to think of it as a tool, that's one of our number one things. And then also promoting safety. Safety is our top concern always in any hunting organization. I don't have to tell Artemis that. (laughs) Safety is utmost important. And at Hunters of Color, we include um, your, you know, mental and personal safety um, with things like anti-racism as well, um, because everyone deserves to feel safe and secure in the outdoors, especially when we're with groups of people. Um, So we expect gun safety and anti-racism to be at the top of our priority list at every event that we do.
0: Can you talk about how, how you lay the foundation for that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're actually, it's exciting (laughs) right now. Uh, We've gotten, we've grown so much. So our board, our board has even grown. We have five board members who have been working with me on developing a curriculum that is kind of, kind of doing exactly that, laying it out and laying the foundation of why we do what we do, why Hunters of Color has to exist. Um, You know, and a lot of people don't know this, but Uh, hunting, like I said before, I think it's 89% male, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And then 97% of all licensed buyers, um, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, identify as white. And just like it's the same kind of um, issue that Artemis is tackling, getting women into hunting, we're also, we see an issue, and we're trying to solve a problem. Um, And part of the way that we do that is this curriculum that I'm talking about that does lay the foundation for why we have to exist um, how, how it's so easy to, to fall into the, this trap of believing, well, I'm not personally racist, so I don't have to work on anything. I don't have to, I don't have to you know, consider, you can see racism from afar and be like, oh, that's awful. But if you, if you tell yourself, well, I don't have that problem, it's really hard to then identify any times where you have hurt somebody. It's easier, you'll get defensive if you just believe that you're, that you're not racist or you're not the problem it 's harder than when someone comes to you asking for empathy and saying, "Hey, this hurt me or this this actually came off this way, and so we teach the difference between impact and intent, um, the history of race and hunting, um, and how to basically how to be more empathetic people and communicating with folks who don't look like you or think like you or love like you or pray like you <laughs> um, and so that's how we lay the foundation for the basic you know anti racism and um, D-E-I-B, <laughs> I heard this term today for the first time. Um, Jimmy's aunt actually shared it with me, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we're laying that foundation of, you know, the outdoors are for everyone. That's our motto. And um, that's what uh, the whole point of this anti-racism and, and um, kind of empathy education is.
0: I love that addition of belonging in yeah. the holistic uh view that it inspires.
1: Yeah. The other one that I've been hearing a lot now too is JEDI (laughs) and not like uh, uh, from Star Wars, but (laughs) (laughs) J-E-E-I, justice, equity, Mm -hmm. diversity, and inclusion. And I think that there's a lot to be said about how you organize the letters even in these acronyms um because they bring justice to the forefront when they use the term jedi, um whoever uses that term, so i don't know I'm, I'm liking I'm liking these discussions around why words are important and um and how these acronyms you know like the belonging that's so great for for Artemis and for hundreds of color that's totally what we're what we're doing we're showing people that we belong out here
0: <laughs> beautiful um, i i I always love origin stories, whether it's with um, people Mm -hmm. or organizations or Jedis or (laughs) like the Star Wars (laughs) kind or superheroes. Uh, And I'm curious, Could you take us back and give us a little bit about the origin story of Hunters of Color and like the kitchen table conversations that happened that led it from an idea to an identified need to an actual organization?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So to set the set the table (laughs) Um, it was yeah i'm glad you caught that it was jimmy (laughs) um jimmy flat who is my partner um and thomas tyner who was a friend of ours mutual friend of ours and myself who originally kind of came together came came uh with this idea and created the organization hunters of color but it started way before that um i think that we all had different journeys getting to this point but Jimmy, for example, um, he grew up in California in a place that was very diverse. And then he and his parents, so his his dad's side of the family is from the Philippines and his mom's family is from Venezuela. And so he's, uh, you know, second generation child of immigrants and neither of his parents hunted, but he had a family friend take them out hunting. And then his dad was Jimmy's dad was kind enough to you know kind of learn alongside him and it wasn't until he was in high school he had some weird kind of hazing sort of things happen and he was like what is this I'm just trying to enjoy the outdoors Um, and so he started to notice whenever he would ask his friends uh, who were people of color to go out hunting with him they'd say nah man we don't do that that's a that's a white person thing or that's not for us that kind of thing and it was a very, it happened all the time, whenever he would asked any of his friends, and even he'd point out, you know, um, like his, he called him his brother, his best friend, Raul, he's like, Raul, your dad hunted in Mexico all the time. What are you talking about? And then he's like, no, we don't do that here. Mm-hmm. So these weird, like, stereotypes that Jimmy kept coming, coming up against and being like, okay, wait, I love hunting. I want to share this with everyone. So then on, on my side of things, I, um, I have a degree in history, like I mentioned, from Oregon State, and I focused on um, civil rights history. And I don't know if you've seen the movie, Black Klansman, um, but there's a point in the movie where the girl, um, a girl who's part of the Black Panthers is talking to the main guy. And the guy's like, he says, do you ever give it a rest, this justice stuff? And she goes, no, injustice doesn't rest. So anyway,
2: <laughs>
1: every single history class, I would, come home, I, would, I would come home and be like, Jimmy, I learned this today or I'm mad about this today, (laughs) like, we need to fix this, like, it was always, like, something um, that I was, I was coming home and being, like, oh my goodness, like, this is ridiculous, how did, how does no one know this, why did I learn this in high school, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. Um, and I originally thought about getting my master's in Indigenous Studies, or going to law school for Indigenous law, or Indian law, is what it's technically called, Um, but this all kind of fell together, because it was one of those things where like Jimmy would get so <laughs> he would get annoyed. He'd be like, why did you ever give it a break? <laughs> Calm down. One of these days we'll figure <laughs> out, we can, you can make a, you can make a difference in your sphere of influence is what he would always tell me. Um, and then it all kind of came together when Jimmy started thinking about, Oh, Jimmy read the article um, is hunting to white on mm-hmm. actually meat eaters website mm-hmm. by Patrick Durkin, who's a uh, very talented writer. And he wrote this and basically laid it out with just the demographics. He asked the question, is hunting too white? And then he shared the demographic studies from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that said, basically, yes, 97% of hunters are white. And that clearly doesn't match our country's demographics. Um, So he read that and he was like, we have to do something. And I was like, you're right. This is totally up my alley too. Let's do something. So then he called Thomas, who is a hunter and fisher, and um, he was like hey would you be down to do this and thomas was like yeah of course um thomas often shares that you know he was he's experienced the exact same thing that jimmy noticed too but he always says that whenever he's hunting he, he thinks he's usually the only black guy on the mountain or on the course or trail or wherever he is and he notices it and so it was all all of us came together and had this idea and had really different angles um for like how we how we uh, could help with the project. And Thomas was instrumental in, in taking pictures and helping us get our website up and running. Um, and I've, with my nonprofit management um, background, I was able to, to help us actually get our 501 status and all the legal paperwork done and up and running and um jimmy's on the program side of things getting the mentorship program up and running so it's been a lot it's been a long journey we're our one year anniversary was actually last week so it's been a long journey and it's been um there's a lot of moving moving pieces and stuff but that's kind of a a probably too long of an answer (laughs) how we got to where we are now
0: (laughs) that's a perfect answer congratulations happy anniversary thank you yeah
2: um, yeah, that's absolutely incredible, and thank you for not giving it a rest. Yeah, <laughs> thank you.
0: Can you what uh, what types of programming uh, are you guys embarking on?
1: So I think that I actually talked <laughs> to you, Marcia, about this. Um, but we're we're in the process of setting up what we're calling communities, um, and that's exactly what it is. Our our uh, our entire organization is actually one of our, one of our pillars is um, MLK's beloved community, um, which was a vision that MLK had of a community devoid of poverty and hatred um, and we're in, and filled with mutual support and love. So that's one of our goals is to kind of create these beloved communities in this hunting world, in the hunting sphere in a way that hasn't really existed before. Um, so, we have a membership program that we've started, and we 're going to be launching an ambassador program, <laughs> which is what I talked with you about marcia yeah. um because i love that you do that for artemis and I think that 's so important to to be not only you know the representation of having ambassadors but also having folks on the ground who are are actively you know playing a role in the organization and doing their part um as as hunters um, or huntresses, and I uh, I think that that's that's kind of the building block right now for our mentorship program, which um, which is community based as well. We do community events, and then um, after our mentors become hawk certified <laughs> through the curriculum and the training that I talked about earlier, we then are able to um, link them up with mentees in their areas, and all of that's kind of contingent upon the um, ambassador program in order to build those communities around those ambassadors um, and just have a network of support uh, all over the country. So, we're active right now in, in Oregon, uh, where, where we live. So, more programming here, but we have programs um, in New York with the Nature Conservancy and the National Deer Association and um, BHA uh, New York. And uh, in Arkansas, we're doing a program with Jonathan from Black Duck Revival. And we have other events um, happening in Washington and California, so it's we're growing, and it's really, really exciting.
0: It's it's fantastic. It's exciting, and and I it's it's been exciting to see how much growth has happened in the last year, uh, and I think that does just speak to the um, the need and desire for
1: yeah yeah
0: for for your
1: organization w- and for the work you do. It's awesome yeah, I was just talking today, actually, when I learned about the um, DEIB. <laughs> I was talking with Jimmy's aunt about how much demand <laughs> there is mm-hmm. for something like countries of color. We couldn't believe it. When we first started talking about this idea, I was like, oh, that has to exist. You know, it has to be someone doing that. And then we did a bunch of research, and there wasn't There's anyone no- on, on a yeah, on the broad on a broad scale. Um, effort. There's a lot of affinity groups, um, like getting women into hunting, for example. I I love that Artemis existed. Actually, I found Artemis, and I was like, wait, this is cool. If they can do this, we can do Hunters of Color.
2: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I I I want to delve into that a little bit um, about because I think you know I, Artemis gets this pushback, and I imagine that Hunters of Color does as well. It's it's oh yeah, it's not like. There are a lot of R3 programs and there are a lot of amazing hunting organizations that do good work. And I think yeah. th- there's some frustration in that it's not that we're not welcome there. And so why is there a need to have affinity groups like Hunters of Color and Artemis? Um, and and yeah. why is that need felt so deeply by by our communities um, when right. uh, when... There are other places where if we showed up, we'd be welcome. And so I have thoughts on that, and I want to hear yours as well. Let's 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 have yeah. that conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I love this conversation. I think it's super important. Um, and it's, I think that whenever we're asked this question, you know, it's always we always want to start out with like, okay, thank you for asking that because it's a really important question, um, and it's a chance to practice empathy and trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes um jimmy always says he so he's an engineer by trade he has a degree in mechanical engineering and he right now works for a research and development firm and he he always says as an engineer i use data to find find problems and then i implement solutions to solve problems which is exactly what we're doing with hunters of color because our vision our vision is to create a hunting community whose racial demographics match the racial demographics of the United States. We're not you know, trying to take hunting away from anybody or make it less accessible to anyone. We're just trying to solve a clear problem in our opinion um, because hunting belongs to no one race and it's definitely dominated in the United States by white Americans. So um, it's, I think you have to start out with this basis of understanding that there is an issue that there is a problem with that statistic. Um, and we also address, you know, when I, when I talk about empathy, putting yourself in someone's shoes, like you said, people don't understand why there's so much like passion, why there's so much need <laughs> from these people in these communities, like uh, women, um, or even our friends at Queers and Camo, like why there's so much need when these other organizations exist, state agencies exist, state agencies help people get into hunting and they do a great job at it. But the reason that hunters of color is so important is because we make culturally specific um, and, and very poignantly so, like and pointedly so, culturally, culturally specific uh, programming. And we're not just saying, you know, BIPOC are welcome here, we're saying this is created for you um and there's something there's something different about you know being told that you're welcome at the table or this table is for you (laughs) and there's a seat with your name on it so that's why I think it's so important for us to have these spaces um we also on our website if you go to hundredsofcolor.org um we have a frequently asked questions uh page and one of the questions that is frequently asked is what's the point of (laughs) affinity spaces um so we even we we tag a uh, another organization that's talked about the the need for affinity spaces, um, which I believe Artemis is as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, two questions that came to mind. One is, can you talk about how the community has been important in your journey? And then the second question I have is about intersectionality as a woman of color, uh, and and if you could talk about that in in your hunting journey as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the first question, how community has been important, I think that what really has been the most important to me just is it's such a beautiful community that we're creating um, and fostering. I shouldn't say creating because these people exist and they're beautiful and (laughs) unique and uh, diverse in and of themselves, but we're fostering this community of amazing individuals. And I think that just meeting so many folks Going going hunting with room app, um, hanging out with Crystal Eggly, like, like just about, meeting oh, Crystal, so gosh. many people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just meeting so many people. Um, and then the other thing is getting messages. We get messages probably more like once a week. Or, I'm, I'm being dramatic. We get messages like twice a month <laughs> um, from people. <laughs> that's almost that, once a
0: week. I mean, that's really it's close. Almost like, <laughs> no, yeah. Every other
1: week we get a message from somebody that says, oh my goodness, I can't believe that this organization exists. I'm so excited. I didn't know that you existed, how long it's been around. Or people saying like, hey, I wish that something like this existed when I was younger because it didn't. And I felt so othered or different mm-hmm. in the outdoors. And so we're really doing our best to make it just, like I said, the beloved community um, based in anti-racism, based in, in, in loving your neighbor <laughs> and caring about other people um and being able to do so outdoors. So that's been the number one thing for me is just seeing how beautiful this community is and how excited people are. Um that's been really a blessing to me, I think. Awesome. Oh, and then the other question, I'm so sorry, I forgot that you asked the second one. That's the okay. other question um was about what again? Intersectionality. <laughs> oh yes. Okay. So and about intersectionality, I think that that's one of the the key parts of why we do what we do because all of us are linked together um no human exists in a vacuum and for i mean since the beginning of this country there are people that have had certain rights over other people um, compared to other people there are people that have had more opportunities compared to other people and i think that the sooner that we realize that you know instead of comparing oppression, (laughs) like I think that SJ from Queers and Camo says, the oppression Olympics, you know, who had it worse, (laughs) that kind of thing. (laughs) Instead of doing that, um, once we come together and realize that we're all in this together, we're all like the the struggle, one person's struggle is everyone's struggle, Um, that we can work towards a more just society for people of color, for women, for people in the LGBTQ plus community, um for indigenous rights like there's so many things that are all tied together um, i'm reading a book by angela davis right now uh about intersectionality and it's just so eye-opening for why we need to be there for each other um, and i think that's still like the whole point of community i know i've said that word a million times already on this podcast but it's just so important to see other people as human beings um and and to care about each other um, and so for that reason, you know, we for Pride Month, for example, like that was our <laughs> SJ and Jane from Queers and Camo were like, oh my gosh, you posted before we did <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, because they were busy with stuff. But it was, it was, it's, it's something that I think that as allies, we need to realize that, you know, everyone can be a better ally to someone else. Um, no matter like how, privileged or, or underprivileged you are, we all have a chance and an opportunity to, to make the world a better place than, than it was when we first got here. <laughs> um, and so that's our goal with intersectionality, working with, um, hopefully, working with groups like Artemis when we get, <laughs> when we get more, uh, more active in other states and working with Queers and Camo, and doing our best to, to really, really make an impact in any kind of affinity space that we enter.
0: It's awesome. I appreciate that. And I I appreciate I do love SJ's Oppression Olympics comment. And to hear them talk <laughs> about it is uh yeah. they're just so eloquent on that topic. Mm-hmm. I could listen to SJ talk forever. Um yeah. and I agree, it's it's uh I mean I hope it's not too far of a stretch for um understanding that if uh, there's a official quote about this somewhere, and I'm going to butcher it, so I'm not even going to try. but like as long as there's any <laughs> inequality, no matter what the group is, there's going to be inequality in in all underrepresented groups. like as long as there's gender discrimination, there's going to be racial discrimination, as long as there's racial discrimination, right. there's going to be gender discrimination. like it's not yeah. something that you can have exist um in small doses. Yeah. It either exists it's- or it doesn't. Right. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: It's um I don't know if it's MLK that you're thinking of, but in just, injustice anywhere is a threat to yep. justice everywhere. That's we are it, caught see? in an incapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. I love that quote. Um and that's exactly the point of intersectionality. <laughs> yep.
2: that's,
1: thank you for that. <laughs> and I was gonna Yeah, yeah, of course. I was gonna mention this too, um, because these things people people I think have been conditioned to believe that the things that we're talking about, like for rights for women or rights for people of color indigenous peoples um people have been told for a long time and at no fault to us but we've been told for a long time that it's political that these are politics that we're talking about Mm -hmm. and first and foremost as a 501c3 nonprofit, we are not allowed to be (laughs) political we're not allowed to you know take sides um in the political realm and i just i always try to express that none of this is political. We're talking about human beings, talking about your neighbors, your kids, your families, their boyfriends and girlfriends, whoever it is. It's, you know, we're talking about the human experience and our shared humanity. Um, And so I, I always like to ask people to try to unlearn (laughs) what they've been told about things like this being political um, and also to unlearn um, what we've been told about privilege too, because I think that often the word privilege is thrown around as kind of like a nasty, a nasty term, something that some people have and other people don't have. And it's really, really bad of those people to have that privilege. And, Where in and- reality, we believe that and we, and we say that privilege, again, not political whatsoever. It's more just a, a lack of barriers for some people. And I truly believe that it exists on a spectrum because some people are able to um, access things more easily, like the outdoors, for example, than other people. And history is a building block of the present. And that's how we got to where we are today. So in the outdoors, for example, the exclusionary laws and practices that kept people of color from owning guns or from hunting certain species, um, that led us to this point where, you know, there's not a lot of generational wealth um, in in the figurative sense and the real sense. But when it comes to things like hunting, there's not a lot of generational wealth for um, the knowledge of of how to hunt certain species for for some folks for some people it's great and um, some people of color have been able to but it it statistically is only three percent of 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 hunters who are people of color and I think a lot of that has to do with just this not not having the privilege of being able to access hunting the same way that um, that other Americans have been able to um, and I always try to address too the privilege that I have as a as a very light skinned Indigenous person. Um, you know, I think that I've had some. I, I know that I've had some privilege in that as well, being able to access things without um, without fear um, of people judging me or being racist towards me or experiencing um, racism myself because of because of that. And I think that's also part of the impetus for like knowing that we have to have these conversations about privilege and people like myself can own, like that's something that I have even as a woman of color, even as an indigenous woman, that's something that I can see myself having um, privilege and, and owning it and knowing that all that means, it's nothing to be ashamed of, it's no fault of my own, um, but all it means is, is that I am now tasked with leveraging that privilege to the benefit of those with less privilege. Um, so anyways, a little bit of a random, <laughs> random tangential sidetrack, but I always do want to, I like to talk about things like this because I think these things have been considered taboo for so long because they've been politicized and it's really unfortunate because we're really just talking about humanity.
0: I I agree. I think it's so important and I appreciate both kind of the the, the unpacking of I, I I don't like that word. <laughs> I'm going to take that back. <laughs> um <laughs> delving more deeply into our understanding and definition of privilege uh and privilege as as um uh being kind of hijacked by the political realm because I think that also phrases it in a way and creates this idea that um it's something you can lose, right? Like Right. You can lose mm-hmm. privileges and, and, you know, and that seems to insinuate that you will therefore be less better off, which is a convoluted mm-hmm. statement. But, and I think, and I, and I, I want to, uh, I th- I think that's a false idea of the conversation too, right? Like equity and yeah. justice, du- like it's not taking away anything from anybody. And if we rethink right. that's privilege, why go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say, that's why our slogan is the outdoors are for everyone, not the outdoors are for BIPOC. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's clearly that's true as well, because the outdoors are for everyone. But that's something that we always try to, you know, um, you know, drive drive that point that we are we exist to make a more equitable outdoors. We're not trying to take anything away from anybody. We're just inviting everybody to be able to experience these things.
0: And people with privilege, by by welcoming that belonging, aren't giving anything up either. They they benefit right. from that belonging too.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: I wanted to go back um, and pick your gra- your brain because you mentioned something about uh, historically people of color not being able to hunt certain species, mm-hmm. and and I don't know this, so can.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's so there's actually it's un, an unfortunately small amount of research that has been done about um about people people of color historically not being able to hunt certain species. But what has been done is a book by Scott E. Giltner called Hunting and Fishing in the New South. Mm-hmm. And I've read the first part of it. I'm so busy <laughs> with my <laughs> 220 unread emails right. <laughs> that. I haven't been able to finish it, but it's really well done. Um, and he mentions, or he he delves into some of these issues and exclusionary laws and practices, such as the fact that um, Black Americans, even after emancipation, were not allowed to hunt certain species um, that were deemed uh, too good for them. Basically, that were deemed uh, to be white man's species. Um, for example. I think that in the South, I, I, I hope that someone will look this up and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Giltner talks about how in the South, the species that Black Americans were allowed to hunt were raccoons, um, possums, and like rabbits or something like that. And at the same time, even during um, the period of slavery, there were so many talented hunters um, who were enslaved humans and they would often be in charge of running the dogs for the white slave owners. And so there's a, there's a deep, there's a, it's interesting because there's a deep connection to being houndsmen, for example, there's a deep connection to, to these dogs these animals and Giltner has some really powerful stories about, about that, about that in, in his book. Um But then you know, once emancipation happens, and black people aren 't allowed to to hunt certain species it's you can kind of see where a divide falls off um, or where you know black folks who not only had been enslaved for hundreds of years for generations, generations of trauma building on itself on on the, on itself um, also weren 't allowed to be educated there 's a lot of <laughs> laws that literally prohibited the teaching of um, even freedmen freed human beings to learn how to read and write um, and so for that reason people had to migrate into cities also which um, it's hard to hunt if you live in a city <laughs> that's a huge disconnect for a lot of people and between that and in redlining um, which you know pushed people of color into certain neighborhoods um, or certain parts of cities and and saved the the nicer bigger properties for the people who the housing associations the USDA wanted to live in those areas with bigger backyards and more property it's just all of this compounds upon itself um, which is why I always say that history is the building block of the future because this is how we got to the point where, where hunters are 97 percent white <laughs> um, you know a 98 percent of all privately owned land is owned by white Americans and so you need land access to hunt. And a lot of states don't have the, the, the luxury that we have out here in the West of so much public land. Um, and so anyways, that was a long, again, a long answer <laughs> to your question, but um, it's really, it's worth checking out that book. Um, and part of our goal at Hunters of Color is to do some more of this research too, um, because these exclusionary laws, a lot of people don't know about them. Um, and so we'd like to help educate folks and, and kind of share how we got here and how we can do better.
0: It's awesome. What you said it was Scott Giltner, is that right?
1: Yeah. Scott E. Giltner, G-I-L-T-N-E-R.
2: Yeah. I would love to read that book and have a much deeper understanding of, you know, that history and how it relates to current times for sure. Mm -hmm.
0: I hear a book club book. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) awesome. Um, I, wow, this was there. We covered a lot of territory.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I do that.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, Sarah, did you have any questions?
2: Um, No, Lydia, you did an incredible job of explaining, you know, the start of Hunters of Color and your focus and Um, You answered a lot of my questions along the way, but one that's still sticking with me from our conversation in the beginning is if you're at this point, how are you navigating introducing new hunters that may not want to be introduced with firearms, but may want to pursue Mm -hmm. species that some states legally require the take of only using firearms? So like Waterfall, for example, is not legal to harvest with archery in some states so I'm, I'm curious right. if you've had to navigate that yet, or what your thoughts are
1: yeah I think that um so first of all one of the most confusing things is how different state laws are oh my gosh <laughs> and mm-hmm. living in Oregon I yes. never even had to think about it right um until we started this and I was like oh what do you mean you can't do whatever x y and z in Montana <laughs> you <Yep>. know
2: um
1: <laughs> things that we take you know we take as axiomatic here where you just can't do them in other states um and it's so interesting to to have to navigate so we have a we have a spreadsheet with different laws and rules for every state because otherwise how would we keep track of these things right see Um, you
0: were gonna go into law in one way or another yeah exactly
1: (laughs) (laughs) i know maybe someday again i'll I'll, I'll actually go and go to law school but yeah this is working (laughs) this is satisfying that craving (laughs) um but yeah and so then the other thing, so for example, we, um, the other thing that we do to, you know, navigate um, people who don't want to, want to use firearms for whatever reason, um, we do archery clinics. So this Saturday is um, one of our first archery clinics. We partnered with Bear Archery um, and they sent us some bows to use um, and the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife is, is lending us a bunch of arrows. And so we have really cool partnerships that, that enable us to do things like archery instead of having to, to use firearms if folks choose. Um, and that's, of course, up to them. We also, you know, we'll try to break those stereotypes down, like I said, about, you know, seeing I always use a, the example of a carabiner because because anyone can see a carabiner and be like, oh, that's a tool for climbers. Climbers use that. And I would love to get to a point where someone sees you know, our, you know, uh, our 12, a 12 gauge and thinks, oh, that's the tool to, for procuring meat, that kind of thing. Um, especially with, I think that that's a, that's a learning, it's an unlearning and a learning process, something that you don't, we would never force someone to go through that process if they're uncomfortable, mm-hmm. that's completely fine. Um, but I think it comes down to whether or not they want to hunt ducks, for example, waterfowl, um, bad mm-hmm. enough. I think that if that's, you know, they might be willing to, to try to do some of that unlearning and unpacking. Um, we also do uh, programming, or in our, in our curriculum, in our programming, we actually have courses too for people of color to kind of unpack some of these things that we've had to deal with, that people have had to deal with, um, like, tra- like trauma from gun violence. Um, and also how to, how to navigate a space that is 97% white, you know, um, how to take care of yourself and how to not internalize any of the, the racism or, or any, kind of, um, any kind of violence that we might experience. Um, and so that's something that is totally on, on that curriculum is deconstructing um, our understandings of firearms. So we really do our best and we're not gonna be able to reach everyone that way. But that's why I love archery.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, that's um, one of the main questions that stuck with me. Otherwise, I just I just have a lot of admiration for this organization and for the work that you're doing. And honestly, this is like a a hard conversation for me to hear and um, <laughs> internalize myself because it just brings to light how much how much more I could and should be doing and i'm sure many others that are listening to this will feel the same so thank you and i think that's
1: a yeah thank you and and thanks for saying that i think that's a really natural reaction that
2: a lot of folks have
1: and i think that jimmy's you know jimmy's um he kept telling me you know we are gonna make it we're gonna make a difference in our sphere of influence we're gonna make a difference in our sphere of influence and i think that if everyone thought that way and if everyone was you know trying to have these conversations that aren't 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 comfortable sometimes um but if we were all thinking that way i'm just i would the world would be such a better place you know if we were considering how Absolutely. we could make a difference in our spheres of influence um and yeah sorry that's that's all i have to say oh, that's beautiful
0: so i would love to hear like not only how people can find hunters of color but what you need right now
1: yeah um so we're huntersofcolor uh dot org and then online, just at Hunters of Color, any social media platform. Um, and, you know, our email addresses are on there, our contact information, everything about our board is on there. And then we also have a tab on our website that's just get involved. Um, so if folks are interested in, you know, what it means to, to be an ally, we have an ally pledge on our website. Um, and, and what it means to be a mentor, that kind of thing. We have a mentor application on our website. So there's a lot of ways for folks to get involved. And if, if hunting is your thing, then this is, that can be your sphere of influence (laughs) where you actively make a difference. Um, We also have a membership program that we just opened up, which is probably our biggest need right now too, is just that as, as Artemis knows and the National Wildlife Federation knows is that need for um, sustainable, secure funding and knowing, you know, knowing how you can do your programming are you know, our mission is making the outdoors for everybody, but we can't do that if we can't afford to do that. <laughs> um, and so we, our membership program is really, really important to us and that's on our website too.
0: And I, I want to ask the question explicitly cause I imagine some of our listeners might be asking it themselves, but for white hunters who want to support the work that you're doing, um, oh, yeah. how can like, yeah, how, how, do you want them to engage with hunters of color?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We actually, our mentorship program, um, we're always seeking mentors who identify as, as, um, as BIPOC or not. Um, And so anyone, any white hunter who wants to support um, and wants to help uh, teach folks how to hunt, you know, we'd be foolish to, to not, (laughs) to not be inclusive in that. I think that one of the greatest joys is teaching someone to, love something that you love too, um, and watching, watching them fall in love with something that you've been doing. Um, and so that's something that we really want, you know, our, you know, white allies who want to be mentors to be able to experience that, that kind of um, joy of teaching somebody. So we do that. Um, we also have gear that um, is on our website, and our motto is on the back of our shirt, the outdoors are for everyone. And we always get people to ask, can I wear this if I'm white? And I'm like, well, do you believe that the outdoors are for everyone? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, folks are always like, oh, of course. I'm like, then wear it. You know, wear it proudly. Um, and so there's lots of ways for folks to get involved.
0: That's, I mean, I, I just want to plug this one because uh, I as as somebody who's managed, who manages the program now and was an executive director of a nonprofit, like anybody who wants to volunteer to help with administrative tasks, <laughs> like, i'm assuming there's room for that
2: (laughs) yeah
1: no i would love i would love help with (laughs) somebody wanted to look at my inbox
0: (laughs) right (laughs) Um,
1: but no it's 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 fun and and there's a lot of opportunities to to get involved with our hunts and our programming and stuff so if you're interested in volunteering i think there's a lot of a lot of perks and some industry discounts too that we have now so It'll be, yeah, it's cool if, if people want to want to do that and are into the email thing <laughs> or whatever it is. There's always, you know, Marsha, there's always something that, that you can use help with. For sure.
0: Uh, okay, we're going to pause really quickly and take a break to hear from our sibling podcast, NWF Outdoors. And check out Aaron's conversation with uh, Jimmy Flat from February 2021. And you can hear more about Hunters of Color. We'll be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision-makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at NWFOutdoors.org. Awesome. Welcome back. Uh, Lydia, I would love to hear a story. Uh, Can you tell us a story of a memorable time in the field or on the water?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you about my first time elk hunting. Um, We were out on the Oregon Coast Range uh, looking for Roosevelt elk. And if you know anything about the Oregon coast, <laughs> it's very steep and it's very dense forests. Um, we have a lot of Douglas firs, um, a lot of evergreens, and then a really, really dense under, um, what's it called, undergrowth. And so I was hunting with my cousin, Travis and Jimmy, and they it was my first time going out for elk. And I was having a great time. Well, we were walking to the trail where we were actually gonna be hunting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we got started going down this cliff. There's no other way I can describe it. It was a ravine. We start going down this ravine and about halfway down I look up and I'm like, Wow, we are we are low. We're I mean we're going we're um what's the word when you're going downhill? Decline decline. When you're going down Descent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a steep yeah, it was a steep descent. So we descended really far into this valley. And I, then it hit me, oh, no, we're going to have to go back up the hill yeah. <laughs> oh. to, to get back to the cars. Um, but it was fun. And it was so much exercise. It was, I mean, I felt really good <laughs> because I was out breathing clean air. Um, but yeah, halfway down this steep cliff, we realized we were, I realized we were gonna have to walk back up. And of course, I was exhausted just thinking about it. Um, but then you get, I got these little spurts of energy whenever I find, you know, uh, a rub where a where, uh, bull elk had rubbed his, um, what's it called? Oh my gosh. To mark his territory, whatever. Where, whenever we find a rub or whenever we would find, um, you know, any other kind of sign, um, if there's droppings or anything and like trying to figure out how fresh they are. Like it was so fun to have that energy uh, boost <laughs> while down this ravine. And so then on the way back up, this is where I, I think that I told Jimmy I was never hunting again because I was, was, I lied. It wasn't true. I've been hunting since, <laughs> but I was getting so frustrated because Jimmy's about six foot three and I'm like five, six. And he was walking in front of me and there were ferns that were also about five, six. <laughs> oh. So he would walk and every time he, he stepped smack. forward, a fern would reach back and smack me in the face going up this steep cliff by the time we got to the top of the hill i was yellow i was covered in, <laughs> in spores from the ferns, <laughs> like everything my head and my hair was covered in it. everything was like kind of gritty it was all in my mouth because <laughs> we're going straight up a hill so i was breathing hard my mouth was open anyway so it was uh it was an interesting first experience elk hunting <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but i've heard that eastern oregon and other states are less um less fern packed and less steep so I'm gonna try that this time
0: (laughs) oh my gosh I yeah like it's it's amazing to me how miserable some hunts can actually be (laughs) and yet the memories of them still end up being fond I just don't understand what happens there yeah
1: absolutely yeah no I it was it was a great time I had a, a phenomenal time it was just halfway up this you know, we're a 600 foot cliff. <laughs> so uh-huh. I'm like, I'm never doing this again well. until next weekend. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um
0: Do you have any pictures? <laughs> I would love to see pictures I might, of you covered actually. in pollen. That would yeah. I might. I'll,
1: I'll look for it. At least if, if anything, I have like videos of me like spitting the, the yellow stuff out of my mouth.
2: Oh my, <laughs> the, the
1: spores. Oh my gosh. It was it was fun. I also, at this time, didn't have any hunting gear and because I was such a new hunter. This was like three years ago. I was such a young hunter at the time that I didn't have any hunting gear. So, I, I know I have some pictures. I'm wearing Jimmy's First Light shirt that goes down to about my knees. <laughs> um, and I had like green leggings on and my boots that were like like basically Timbaland boots. Um, and... I Isn't did not the look the best like a hunter. traction for that kind of <laughs> incline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it was so funny. I didn't look like a hunter, but I did it and I, I tried and I got covered in spores and had a great time. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs>
0: nice. Um, I feel like all elk hunts need to be a touch miserable. Otherwise <laughs> just, that's in my experience anyway. But yeah. Sarah, yeah. have you ever been elk hunting?
2: I have not. Um, I have not even applied for points here in Michigan to be honest. Mm -hmm. I I think I would prefer my elk hunts to be out west. So even though I have elk, a wild elk herd in my home state, I, I don't have the desire to hunt to this herd just because of the insane process for applying here. Yeah. Come out to
1: Oregon. We will not take you to the
2: coastal range.
1: <laughs> <I promise. laughs> yeah, I feel like... Sarah,
2: under a mouthful of fern pollen
0: <laughs> How tall are you, Sarah?
2: I am five foot seven.
0: Okay. So yeah, you're in the fern zone.
2: Yeah,
0: the fern height. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Uh, hits and misses, our weekly closer. What have you been aiming for and how did it go? Sarah? <laughs>
2: Well, all right, I will go for what I consider a hit. Um, I got out fly fishing the other day and took my wonderful dog, Timber, with me. I actually tried to run her on birds first, burn up her energy, and then cool her down by letting her roam the stream while I fly fish. So we were doing that. It was lovely. I wasn't getting any bites at all. And then I somehow <laughs> stepped into a pretty deep hole wasn't wearing waders it was hot enough where I just got in with my shorts and tank top and had cradle time Um, but I was carrying a backpack with water and some medical supplies and my phone and car keys and a revolver because I do that out in the wilderness here because bears. Mm -hmm. Anyhow (laughs) uh, stepped into this hole and was immediately the most concerned about getting my revolver wet nothing else nothing else matters. Somehow managed to lift my backpack over my head as I was falling and caught a fish. What? <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> so, didn't get my revolver wet or my phone or my keys and had a fish on the line as I was getting out of this hole. All oh, well, happened amazing. very fast, but yeah, I was able to successfully catch the fish and release it. It was a beautiful five inch little strip trout. So that made my whole wow. week.
0: That's amazing. That is a lot all of all at once.
2: Yes. On. So and... step in the you'll catch fish.
0: Nice. Uh, how deep was the hole? I mean, obviously um, high enough that you needed to take your backpack off, but...
2: Yeah, it went up to my chest, so I was not oh, expecting wow. that at all. It was standing in like maybe a foot of water and stepped into that. It was That's... all murky, oh, so I God. couldn't have seen it, but... Yeah. I thought the fish were probably in that hole.
0: (laughs) Cheers to good reflexes. I probably, (laughs) that's impressive. Uh, Lydia, what have you been aiming for and how did it go?
1: Let's see. I have a hit and a miss, but I can be pretty brief on both of them. I've been aiming for getting grants for Hunters of Color. Yes. um, And we got our first one last week. And I'm so excited about it because that can be the most frustrating process but it's actually from the band Portugal The Man, <laughs> which oh, is wow. so, it sounds so random to say. Yeah. Um, and I really like their song Feel It Still. I don't know if you know that song, but I, I've heard of them mm-hmm. so, so many times because of that song. And it turns out they're awesome champions of like indigenous rights. And so I reached out and I was like, hey, this is what Hunters of Color does. We connect people to our ancestral heritages. Um, is this something that you're interested in funding? And they were like, yeah, for sure right away they responded right away they were so great um that's awesome and so anyways that's a huge hit and then a quick miss we tried to take rusty paddleboarding uh, rusty is our yellow hunting dog or he's a red lab um but he's our hunting dog and he loves the water he loves swimming but we had him on the paddleboard he was whining and whining and whining and we were like what the heck is going on? Like he loves water. He's not nervous around water. Why is he whining so much? And we're driving ourselves and everyone else on the river crazy. And uh, then a merganser uh, flew by and he stopped whining. So it turns out we just need to like drag decoys with us or something next time. (laughs) Because if he sees a duck, he'll be quiet and focused. But it was so funny. We totally learned our lesson that he is a water dog with a purpose. He needs to he needs mm-hmm. to know that he's doing something. So I think he was just looking for ducks. He's being antsy the whole time because the second he saw the merganser, he was fine.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. It's like, it's a day on the water. is not a day in the water unless there's a duck.
2: <laughs> yep. Exactly. <laughs> According to Rusty at least. <laughs> I love it.
0: I, I, I know some humans who would feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very cool. Um, Well, my hit, we finished, we wrapped up our fly fishing tactics, um, online series last night with our final meeting. Um, and I really enjoyed it, Sarah, you were there, which was awesome to spend time with you there as well. Uh, but I thought it was a great conversation and I really, um, enjoyed hearing from the group and from our experts and, uh, yeah, just excited for another successful tactics series and looking forward to the next one. I'm thinking maybe ice fishing. That would be fun. Oh, cool.
2: I am super into it. Count me in for that as well. Okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs)
2: Awesome.
0: Let's do it. Uh, Lydia, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation and and I'm grateful that you joined us and I appreciate your time because I know that it's valuable.
1: But this was honestly so much more relaxing than reading 200 emails. So thank you so much <laughs> for having me. And thanks, too, for, for caring about what we're doing at Hunters yeah. of Colors. So I appreciate you both a lot.
0: Absolutely. Back at you. Um, keep doing what you're doing. And, and we're excited to watch where Hunters of Color goes and, and support it every step of the way.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: And to our listeners, thanks for joining us on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside.